The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Everybody and welcome back to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic, and people call me Doctor Everett Scott. Brad. <laughs> Doctor Scott. Janet. Janet. Brad. Rocky. <laughs> Bullwinkle. <laughs> And uh, yeah, this is the podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network where we take a look at the prehistory of massive pop culture phenomenon. We previously spent 20 whole episodes examining the films that inspired Star Wars. We are currently in the process of looking at the films that inspired the cult horror sensation, the defining midnight movie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it has been a delight. Mm-hmm. And we are, this week, going to explore the very first reference in the Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show. Literally yeah. the first word mm. in the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a reference to this mm. movie. So they say 20th Century Fox Presents. and Which the is audi- itself yeah. a reference to this the, movie. The, 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 it's 20th Century Fox <clears throat> the audience shouts out, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, God said, let there be lips. And then uh, Richard O'Brien's lips appear. Or no, it's uh, Pat Quinn's lips appear, Pat on, Quinn's lips, Richard appear on the screen. And, and Richard O'Brien's voice comes through those lips. And the first the words they say is, Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still. But he told us where we stand. And uh, true words were ne'er spoken. Let's talk about the day the earth stood still. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. Hi, Drew. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute Ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. The Day the Earth Stood Still is one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's I dig the heck out of this movie. It's a great science fiction movie. It's an important science fiction mm. movie. Um, it's easy to forget now that science fiction, fantasy, superhero stories 
now that they are driving not just a big part of the economy, but an enormous part of the mainstream culture, mm. that these were considered lesser genres for many, 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 many years. Well, uh, when we refer to B-pictures, uh, just to, to reiterate, reiterate again, uh, when films were run as double features, there was an A feature and a B feature, along with uh, cartoon shorts and newsreels and a bunch of other things. Uh, going to the movies was an all-day affair. Yeah, and or at least had, an all-night affair. Uh, it, and you, and the, the projector was running constantly. There were no post-it showtimes. You would just sort of go in whatever something was playing. But mm-hmm. there was always a, a big-budget Hollywood A feature with uh, big actors, and then there was the B feature, which was usually a genre film. Uh, and that's because these genre films didn't sell well at the time. Uh, and also they were expensive to make. They were usually very effects heavy and those are hard to make convincing. Mm-hmm. So you watch a lot of these old science fiction movies and the effects aren't that great because they're not willing to put a lot of money into effects for a genre that's not selling very well. Nope. Not, uh, not worth you, it. You, not, watch, uh, uh, yeah, you, you watch Tarantula. Okay. There are a few shots where the tarantula looks cool, but it's clearly just a tarantula being you know, superimposed over a desert landscape. Uh, it was really rare to then, like like you you were alluding to, to get a good budget on a science fiction movie. Well, it's not even so much the good budget that I was referring to, although that is true. Mm. And there were some horror movies which have a sci-fi bent, which mm. did have a budget on it. Some of the early Frankenstein yeah, films, for yeah. example. Frankenstein is not just a horror story. It's also a science fiction story. Um but uh, regardless, this kind of sci-fi story, and it's a story of a UFO, unidentified flying object, that comes to Earth. It is not a secret. Everyone knows about it. One of the first things we get, in, the, in fact, the first thing we get in the movie after this glorious mm. opening credit sequence with images from outer space and fantastic theremin music from the great Bernard Herrmann, um, is a big montage of people all over the world Finding out that a UFO is landing in this, Washington D.C. This is uh, exactly what Roland Emmerich was ripping off. Oh yeah, in well, all of his movies, really, <laughs> but especially, especially, uh, especially in Independence, Independence Day. Day, and also um, the Day After Tomorrow. Yeah, the idea where, that, that, that uh, this these... is a global pro- and and twenty twelve as well that this yeah. is a global problem, and we're going to cut to miniature scenes from around the world, not starring any of our main characters, mm-hmm. just watching the world react to this gigantic phenomenon. Now, we'll talk about the way that this film addresses the idea of globalism in a minute, mm. because that's really at the heart of the day mm. the Earth stood still. But regardless, uh, this is a movie that was trying to take a concept that, frankly, a lot of people would have a lot of difficulty taking seriously, because, again, the genre wasn't taken very seriously as a whole, and trying to tell a story that is not just fun, and it is fun, mm. but also is potent, intelligent, and actually has something meaningful to say, mm. important, one might argue, about the world at large. Trying to, uh, I, I was actually, I was actually talking to my therapist about this not long ago, and um, we were talking about the metaphor of um, aliens. Mm about extraterrestrial life. And apparently uh, this is actually kind of a useful uh, uh, metaphor or analogy in psychology because otherwise we have no perspective from which to look outside at humanity. Mm. We are humans. We only know the human perspective. The idea of something that is away from us, looking at humanity, looking at the human existence, looking at what humans value and what they do, and going, huh, (laughs) <laughs> and and trying to suss this out logically yeah. 
that is something that is entirely useful as a psychological tool, but also here as a storytelling device. Mm. And so the premise of the day the earth stood still is that aliens have been watching us. And this is, again, this is 1951 right after world war two, the cold war is underway. Mm. And we're starting to look at nuclear power, specifically nuclear weapons and the destructive capability of that. And the idea that science, we might not be mature enough as a species mm. to handle the scientific progress that we have found. And as a result, aliens are looking at us as children who have found a weapon. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we need to do something about those children and take yeah. the weapon away or something. Uh World War Two was, uh, if if you sort of look back over the way th- uh, things in terms of uh, science and philosophy and politics were all simultaneously evolving uh, right before World War Two, mm-hmm. it seemed like we were headed for sort of the promised land. That uh, we were inventing all kinds of new machines. Technology was moving forward in leaps and bounds. Uh, politically, it seemed like we were moving into a much stabler place. Uh, and uh, philosophically, it seems like we had kind of run the gamut. We've mm. sort of come to the end of all ideas and we were prepared to now move like evolve as a society. We are finally poised and World War II disproved every one of those theories. With politics, we uh, le- started to lean not just uh, with the Third Reich, but kind of globally, there was this big push to uh, extreme fascism mm-hmm. uh, in terms of technology we are leaning really towards rather than you know miracle products we're leaning towards the bomb and uh philosophically we could no longer have any kind of moral high ground Mm -hmm. uh when we invented the bomb we got a little arrogant Uh, and when i say we i mean we as a species when Mm -hmm. human beings invented the atomic bomb a bomb that can destroy everyone on the planet yeah first time uh we felt that we had sort of achieved something. And this is like trying to get into the mindset of the the, the early 1950s. We f- felt we, that we had achieved something really big and really important. And now that we had sort of fought through this war, we could say, well, that was some people thought that was the last stumbling block. And now we're ready. And now we are powerful. And now we are good. Yeah. Ask anybody in the 1950s how great it was. Mm-hmm. But yet yeah, speaking in terms of military might, that's kind of where our mind was at the time. We had just won the big war and we had pulled ourselves out of the depression. We were now really economically flourishing in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, America was economically flourishing in the 1950s. And a lot of other countries were sort of in our debt because we came to, to the rescue a few years late. And uh, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, uh, look, we were busy. All right. <laughs> we, had, we had other things going on. Yeah. I, yeah. We were, we were dicks. There's, there's even a line, there's a line to that effect in the movie Chicken Run. There, oh, the, I don't remember that line at the, all. The, the elderly about? rooster who lives with all of the, the, the chickens yeah. uh, meets the American rooster and yeah. he says, oh, I've never, I've never trusted Americans. And as he's wandering off screen, we hear this little line of ADR, showing up late for every war. <laughs> like, this is a movie for little kids. One of my favorite Simpsons lines ever was, uh, oh, you're British. You know, we saved your butt in World War II. Mm. And then the guy says, well, we saved your butt in World War III. Touche. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was in place in the future. That's really funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the, this idea of a science fiction film using uh, a more powerful might mm-hmm. uh, 
served to humble this arrogance that was flooding through uh, American thinking at the time. Well, if you think about it, like, okay, so the American sort of swagger yeah. after World War II was, we have this bomb. Hmm. Who wants to start some shit? You want to start some shit? We got this bomb. You want to start some shit? We got this bomb. You want to start this shit? You can annihilate the entire planet with a thought. Okay, uh, I have regrets about how I entered this conversation. And there were a, a lot of films in the 1950s about that. Yeah. About, you know, s- some bigger, more powerful thing or us not really realizing our effects of uh, what our weapons would have on the world at large. Yeah, and what I think is really important about The Day the Earth Stood Still is that there's an element of this movie that is fear-mongering, but more mm. than that, there isn't, what this movie is really about is about considering our place, not just as a country with a national identity that's feeling really cocky right now, but considering our place throughout the globe, mm. And also throughout the universe. So we have these ideas. When we open with not really America, we open with a big montage of everyone on the planet Mm. unified by this groundbreaking, life-changing revelation that we are not alone in the universe. Uh, And then we find out more. We don't find out a lot, but we find out more about that alien species and what they are trying to impart upon us in terms of wisdom and also in terms of threat. Mm. And we realize that we are not only a, a, a planet unified through uh, global events, through science, through politics, through our mutual need to not be at war with each other, mm. uh, but we are also unified in the fact that we're small. Yeah. And this movie is not only a, a science allegory, for the threat of nuclear proliferation. It's also a religious allegory, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in great detail. Um, the movie, again, it just starts fast. There's no fucking around, okay? It's like we have this... It's a pretty, pretty quick-moving film. It's it, only like 91 minutes. It's 91 minutes, but like for a movie that feels as epic as it does, it's actually pretty impressive, the clip that it works through. So it opens with... UFO is going to fucking land. Like one of the first shots is right in plain sight. No one's hiding it. Big montage of everyone talking about it. All of the newspapers, all of the, the radio programs. And then the UFO lands in Washington, D.C. They're surrounded by the military. And then there's this awesome sequence where the alien ship, which looks just like a UFO. It's like the image of an of a alien spacecraft that we have in our heads. It opens up. And it looks really cool. Mm. It's like it opens up in such a way where like you can't see where the door was. And they did it by like sealing it up with putty. And then like when it pulled open, it ripped open the putty. Mm. And they just ran it in reverse Mm. so that you can't really see it. So so such a great lo-fi visual effect. And a guy in a weird outer space outfit walks out. Mm. Says, I come in peace. And then he reaches into his shirt. And he pulls out a mysterious device. And then he's immediately shot by an idiot. <laughs> well, uh, the, the the flying saucer lands in Washington, D.C. And they immediately rally the troops. So there's tanks and guns and soldiers everywhere. Each each soldier has a handgun yeah, turned there, on. There's a guy. It's a it's a hilarious image. There's, there's guys in tanks, you know, uh-huh. like that part of the top of the tank. And they're like the turret, sitting yeah. the turret. They're in the turret and the turret, the, uh, the, the hatch is open. And the guy's like standing on the turret. And then he's got this giant gun mm. in his vehicle. And then on top of that, he pulls out a handgun just in case. 
which is absurd. That's that's something that's always uh, looked a little strange to me when I see like World War II pictures when somebody pulls out a handgun and starts firing bullets. I I I guess sure. It's it's supposed to be like yeah, a last resort, one extra thing. weapon. Yeah. Like there was that scene at the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan, yeah, where uh, the Tom Hanks character is injured and he's laying in the dirt and he's like firing the machine gun and runs out of bullets uh-huh. and there's a, a tank coming towards him uh-huh. and he has no recourse. He's just sitting there. He's he's, he's dead. doomed. Yeah, and he pulls out a handgun and just starts firing at like, the tank. What Almost else like, am I supposed to fucking do? Well, I don't so like know. It, it, he knows it's futile. It's just like blam, blam. I want to. I want us to be able to say people. If anyone notices, I want people to say I went out looking badass. Like <laughs> it's kind of the maybe one of these out. will do it. I'll Who hit knows? The, I'll find the one weak spot, like in Robot Jocks, <laughs> <laughs> which ha- which won't be made until the late eighties. But whatever. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, the, so the, our alien, the, his name is Klaatu, played mm. by the great Michael Rennie, is shot. Mm. And he, like, huddles over, and the device he pulled out of his of his coat is destroyed. And he's just like, this was a gift for your president. It was going to tell him all the information you could ever possibly need about other planets. It, was, it, it would let him, uh, yeah, let him learn about other planets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Private Johnson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good job. I, I hope he got a, a, a dressing down. It was dr- drummed out of the military. It yeah. just goes to show you why maybe our first responders shouldn't be the people with guns yeah. in every yeah. situation. <laughs> maybe maybe this isn't always the best choice. But he's, he's taken to Walter Reed Hospital. They start looking after his wounds. He reveals that even though he looks like he's like in his mid-30s, mm-hmm. he's in his late 70s just because his medical technology is that much better yeah, people from, live to from be his like home planet. Yeah, 140 very easily. And uh, he begins to communicate right away that he needs to talk to every world leader. He needs to talk to the entire planet. He's yeah. got a very important message. The American government's just like, well, just tell us. We'll tell everyone else. He's like, no, I know enough. Government, yeah. I know enough about your shit. <laughs> I, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Oh, I need but, to talk, uh, speak to everyone simultaneously. Oh, excuse me. They take him to Walter Reed, but I skipped over a very important part mm-hmm. uh, because after he's shot, oh, yeah. his bodyguard comes out of the ship. Gort. Uh, Gort. Gord is one of the great movie monsters. Uh, just this wonderful science fiction creation. He's this smooth-looking, nine-foot-tall robot. Yeah, sm- like, like uh, the T-1000, like the idea for the T-1000 and mm. how like you can't see gears or servos or anything. He's just this smooth, mm. metallic thing. That stems all the yeah, way back to Gord. Does, doesn't have a face, but it has this big visor across its it head. So cool. And the, the visor raises up and it fires out a laser beam that just melts all the weapons, including everybody's handguns. Yeah. And there's even a great bit where um, uh, Klaatu picks up the thing, the, the little mm-hmm. translator device that he was going to hand off. And the military guy immediately reaches for his gun and then realizes that his holster is empty. Like it was ev- ev- evaporated earlier. Yeah. It's, it's cute little detail. It's really great. Gort will be important later. Um, so yeah, he's taken to Walter Reed. The American government is just like, well, we'll, we'll handle everything. He's like, no, I need to speak to everyone simultaneously. And it's like, well, we that's not really a thing. We're in the middle of a Cold War. He's like, what about the United Nations? And they're like, ha, what about the United Nations? And uh, eventually they say, hey, we'll talk to the world leaders and we'll see like if we're willing to meet. And they're like, Moscow's like, we'll only do it if we can meet in Moscow. And Britain's mm. like, we're not going to meet in Moscow. And I'm like, you only talk to two countries? What the fuck? <laughs> well, I, I, he was just, I, they probably talked to more, but he said like, this, this is kind of the example of what probably, we're up against. I don't know, man. That's a Here, very, that's a very 1950s view of global um, politics. The only people who matter are Britain and Mon- right. and Russia. I, I understand that this is an American film, uh, but it, 
something that's rubbed me the wrong way about the day the Earth stood still was why did the alien spacecraft choose to land in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's actually a political move, isn't it? Like yeah. it, it favors one country. And I would think that they would be wise enough to land like in international waters mm-hmm. or, or the North territory. Pole. Yeah, some point. Yeah. Well, maybe not the North Pole because people couldn't get there. Well, but that was, that was some the case in the movie Arrival where they yeah, actually yeah. landed all over the place. Right. Simultaneously. And there was no one country that could lay claim mm. to having access to these aliens. Mm. I, I appreciate it in uh, Mars Attacks when the, mm. the Martians finally landed for the first time. It was in Pahrump, Nevada. It's mm-hmm. like it's the United States, but it's not like any significant city. Yeah, it, and everybody has to go out to this like remote little tiny city I, in Nevada. I think every co- I think we should do we should remake the day the Earth stood still in they every did. country. No, oh, in, in every, every country. country. Okay. Every country gets one first contact movie if they don't already. Okay, and like just like hey, what if they landed? In, in Kenya, for instance. What yeah. if they landed in Kenya? What if they landed in Micronesia? Mm-hmm. What if they land anywhere? Mm. I think everywhere should have a first contact story, just because I want to see how it would play out differently, yeah. depending on what culture they visited first. And I think that would actually be really interesting and valuable. <laughs> um, I know there are others, sociological but exercise. I want literally all of them to have mm. their own version of this story. Um, so when uh, Klaatu realizes that the American government isn't going to be any help, like, which, again, you're right, stupid move. He knew enough about politics to know that it's a it's a dicey time. That's literally mm. why we're here. Uh, he actually fucks off. He he escape. He slips the security. He gets out in. Uh, on on my Blu-ray, they, there's this like extended preview of the remake. Oh yeah. And uh, the remake is of course far more sensational. And uh, Klaatu is somebody who is like a non-corporeal alien that's taken possession of Keanu Reeves' body. Yeah. Uh, I actually haven't and, seen it, but I assume it's also, the actor Keanu Reeves. Like they're a big fan. Like I loved you and I love you to death. <laughs> <laughs> underrated film I love you to death and we're like oh cool aliens you have interesting taste in cinema I we've, know right you're gonna put a love you to death on blu-ray right con- uh no we've constructed our society around a walk in the clouds <laughs> everything is halcyon and it's sunset and everything tastes of wine <laughs> it's a good movie actually the, the aliens land yes we have a very important question that doll Barbie what was her little sister's name again it was Skipper Skipper right hey everyone it's Skipper okay bye <laughs> They fly away, uh, but in, in the remake, uh, in that little bumper, I saw because I haven't seen the remake. I've I just seen either. like these extended clips. Uh, that sequence where he escapes uh, the hospital mm-hmm. is it, yeah, it's like this big escape sequence where he like psychically mm-hmm. mind wipes a guy and steals his clothes and reads people's thoughts so he can get out through the exit. It's like in the original, it's off it, camera. <laughs> in the original, he's just gone. It's yeah. Like, oh no, he escaped. He's and then, smart. <laughs> and then uh, he shows up in the home of uh, Patricia Neal. Yeah. She lives, uh, at, she lives a, at a, a home with a, an apartment complex with a couple other people. Yeah, she she's a widower. Uh, she widow. lost her husband. A widow, excuse me. She's yeah. a widow. She lost her husband in the war. Uh, she's been raising her uh, obnoxiously precocious young son. He's not. He's not like precocious, like Ron Howard in Village of the Giants or anything. Oh uh, yeah, well, he's pretty bright. But I actually like that he's a little punk. Like he likes like mm. he likes cutting school. He like mm. when he finds out that Michael Rennie doesn't know about money, he like gleefully trades the diamonds that he's yeah. got with him for two dollars. <laughs> like, well, I have these diamonds. I can make these on my ship. Oh. Sure, here's $2. Yeah. The kid puts the diamonds in his I, pocket. I, I don't dislike the kid in this narrative. I think he's got more shading than a lot yeah. of other kids in this kind of narrative. Yeah. But I, um, yeah, so yeah. so Klaatu ends up living with human beings. And he explicitly says 
that what he wants to do is he's clearly underestimated the complexities of human life on Earth, and he kind of wants to see it more from the ground level. Mm. So he wants to spend a little bit of time just getting to know humans. So he's hiding out. There's a big manhunt. The whole world is looking for him. Mm. Nobody knows what he looks like because he never took off his helmet in public. Yeah. Um, why the government doesn't just release his picture, I don't know. They are trying to find him. That's a bit of a plot hole, but whatever. Um, and uh, so he's hanging out with Patricia Neal. He's hanging out with Patricia Neal's son. He's trying to reach out to this local scientist played by the great Sam Jaffe. And um, uh, Sam Jaffe is clearly modeled after Albert Einstein. Mm. He's this Klaatu uh, literally asks the kid, "Is this like who's like the smartest human being on the planet? Like who's like the great mind that people would listen to?" And he says, the "Smartest guy I know is Schmalbert Schmeinstein." And so they <laughs> they change the name, but uh, so but fortunately he lives close by because mm. he's like working for the government or working with the government. And, and uh, Einstein was still alive at this point, by the way. Mm. Einstein didn't die until the mid fifties, so yeah, he was. A, they probably a recognizable figure. They probably couldn't get him. Well, would it be I, great Einstein if they would have out? been in a movie. <laughs> what are you talking about? He totally would have been in a movie. He was a he was a he was a kooky guy. Uh, maybe did I they guess, ask? Think... Would you at least ask? I would have asked. If, if I would have been like, ask hey, Einstein to be in the movie, <laughs> Albert. Albert, it's like three scenes, and you're basically playing yourself. We will shoot as long as it takes. We will only use the the the, the takes that look good for you. Hmm. Can we please put you in this sci-fi movie? We'll make you look good. I don't. You know what? I don't know. I actually don't know enough about Albert Einstein to know what a like sort of a movie junkie he was. If he liked yeah. movies or if he liked science fiction movies at I'd all. I'm curious. Yeah. I do know that at one point later on in his life, he did help like his niece romance Tim Robbins a little bit. Right. Remember that, that? That's he, yeah. The the true the true story. The biography. IQ. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. That that was real. It's actually a cute movie. I haven't seen it. It's, it's cute. It's it's it's. I've, it's I've heard that shitty biography, but well, it's, it's cute. Walter it, Matthau plays Albert Einstein in that movie. Yeah, it's a rom com co starring Walter Matthau as as Albert Einstein and an order. And uh, Tim Robbins is in love with his genius niece, and in order to help him, uh, in order to help him romance his niece because he likes this Tim Robbins kid, he gives him one of his old formulas that he could never disprove and just says, "Here, pretend you wrote it." <laughs> that's the plot if i can't disprove it who can i don't know maybe someone eventually will but you'll look really smart it's like that's the whole bit it's really it's, hmm. it's not bad actually it's kind of cute but uh, i i love the they go to the off the little boy leads uh Klaatu to the the scientist's office and uh there's this wonderful bit where he said he's not there the yeah. scientist is not there but they peek in through his window and Klaatu sees this big chalkboard full of all his theoretical physics. And he looks at it and he kind of like shakes his head like, <laughs> what a fool. <laughs> and uh, apparently it's actually pretty good science. Like they actually did like get real physics equations that like some kind of unsolvable yeah. space travel problem that people have been sort of imagining. Like, how do you mm. how would you travel through space at certain velocities or yeah. at certain. But they, they break into the office and uh, in order to sort of leave his calling card, he writes some things in the equation. It's like, hey, he's been working on that for months. Yeah, I'll solve it in no time now. Yeah, and like, and like he, the, the, what his like landlady or something comes mm. in. It's like, hey, you can't be in here. It's like, here, here's where I'm living. He'll he'll want to talk to me. And then she <laughs> picks up an eraser. He's like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and I love this. A part of me, I I don't know how true this is, and I would actually kill because I never really thought of it before. I would kill to interview 
Matt Damon or Ben Affleck because I just want to ask was this the inspiration for the opening of Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> because that's the same plot point as Goodwill Hunting. That's There's right. this unsolvable math problem. And the janitor has secretly solved it. Yeah, and everyone's the looking for genius. Everyone's yeah. looking for that guy. It's a great opening to a movie. It's a great plot point here too. Only one person like mm. in, a, in a billion could do it. That's great. It's been a while since I've seen Goodwill Hunting. I remember loving that movie when it's, it came it's out. It's a great acting movie. It's a bit schmaltzy, but I think it works. Mm. I, I like it a lot. Um, I interviewed... Um, Matt Damon about that movie he did with John Krasinski, The Promised Land. Oh, okay. and uh, they'd like co-written it. That's the fracking movie, right? Yeah, it's a movie about fracking. It's, it's, yeah, Matt Gus Damon Van comes. Sand film. Yeah, Gus, weird Gus Van Sant movie. It's like it's well, completely. He, al- he also did Goodwill Hunting. I know, so, but yeah. I know, but like the Promised Land, like has no Gus Van Sant stamp on it whatsoever. Like <laughs> anyone could have made that movie. There, like, are two, there remember there are two Gus Van Sants. I know, but the, even Goodwill Hunting at least feels like it's like an actor's movie. Promised uh, Land is just. Kind of generic. This bland Hollywood message picture. Yeah, like kind of almost anyone could have made that one. But anyway, um, but I, I, I interviewed Matt Damon for it. And I was like, so you wrote this movie with John Krasinski. When you were having like a disagreement about the screenplay, did you ever like trot out the Oscar that you won for writing Goodwill Hunting and just say, well, me and Mr. Oscar think that this scene should end this way. <laughs> to Matt Damon's credit, he said, actually, I wore it around my neck on a chain. <laughs> so we always saw it. That guy's got a great sense of humor. He does. Um, Matt Damon's one of those people that I, like, you You want to hate him, but you can't think of a reason why. I can't think of yeah. a good reason why. I, especially since he, like, I was raised by educators, and he's, mm. like, been very outspoken about teachers' unions, and a part mm. of me is just like, that's a pet cause of mine, too, man. I, <laughs> all right, anyway. Um, I digress. Uh, so Sam Jaffe realizes that this guy is the real deal, knows the stuff, and uh, Michael Rennie says... Okay, so here's my backup plan. They We can't work with all the governments of the world because all the governments of the world are self-centered and nationalistic and yeah. at odds with each other and it'll never work out. If I talk to all the scientists of the world, you guys are actually open to, to new ideas mm. and you guys might listen to me, at which point Sam Jaffe said, that's a great idea, except the governments don't always listen to us because they're run by idiots, which is... <laughs> Still an issue. Fair, yeah. Yeah, and so what they do is that he... And so uh, Michael Rennie, and in this weird moment, because normally he's like... I mean, he's he's very benign and benevolent. Mm. In a weird moment of godlike power where he's not really thinking out consequences and caring a lot about humanity, he says, okay, so in order to get people on board and people to realize that I mean business, I could do something big. Mm. And so I was like, what are you thinking of? level new york he's like scale that way the fuck back and he's like okay okay okay, we're we're, we're spitballing here we're spitballing here we're having throwing out ideas we're not not coming to any conclusions you want something dramatic but not something that'll hurt anybody and so what they come up with is at one specific moment everywhere in the world all electronics Mm -hmm. are going to go out for 30 minutes the day will the day the earth will stand still exactly Sounds like a good idea until you realize that there are hospitals that are going to suddenly lose power. They talk, they show like cars break down, planes are dropping out of the sky, probably. Well, the, it's no, still the, some negative stuff. No, they say that. Do they? They, they say that it, it was selective power, like except for like hospital rooms and planes in flight. I missed that. Yeah, there's a line of dialogue. That, that always to that bugged effect. me. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm so glad that they, that's they, in there. they covered it. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where, where, how I missed that. Mm-hmm. I've always been looking for it. Well, in any case, good. So, mm-hmm. problem solved. Um, and now everyone's like, oh shit. 
Uh, problem is now the government is like no longer trying to catch this guy alive. Like we we want him alive if we can, mm. but we just want him gone. Yeah, you know because surely they won't send anyone else. Idiots! <laughs> Wait, we whole aliens easy to send one guy. Oh, they killed that one guy, and everyone's like, oh shit. America's full of badasses. We're not going to send anyone else. No. We're going to send more people, you fucking... Uh, so there's a big chase. Uh, he is finally convinced Patricia Neal that he is not a bad guy. Patricia Neal's boyfriend is um, selling him out. Yeah. Actually, he finds out the truth, and he is selling him out uh, for, like, four pieces of silver. Is it four? Twenty. Is it twenty? Twenty pieces. Oh, is that far off? <laughs> you know, I'm an atheist. Um, read, read the Bible, you even read it. It was since it's college. Okay. Well, fair enough. Anyway, the, which brings us to the idea that this is a major Christ allegory. This is a huge Christ allegory. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. He, the guy comes from you know a higher plane of existence. Tries to tell everybody peace for the love of Christ. Peace for the love mm. of me. Peace. And uh, oh, you know what? It was thirty pieces of silver. Was I it thirty? I, I got it wrong. So you know, never mind. I, I, oh! I, I knew I got something wrong there. Oh, it wasn't twenty. It was thirty pieces of silver. We're both going to hell. Uh, no, <laughs> you don't get a Bible quiz at the pearly gates. <laughs> Sorry, you know, thirty, not twenty. Got to go to the other place. <laughs> Anyway, you have to be well versed in all of the holy books. <laughs> Which version of the Bible? That's a big problem. Yeah. It's like oh, no, it's only King James. Yeah, I don't know why we selected that one, but we just at some point we said fuck it, no more. King James is the right one. The one that Shakespeare wrote. Yeah, sure. With, the, with his boyfriend, King James. You know. Um. Anyway, that, that's what I heard. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, let's 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 quickly rattle down some of the some of the Christ allegory here. He comes from from a higher plane of existence, trying to teach people to get to get along. People do not respond to this well and martyr him. Uh, when he, do, he, he does die, he does die, and he is eventually resurrected by Gort. And I want to talk about that scene in a minute because it's interesting. Um, when he is living amongst the people, he uh, takes on the name of was it John Carpenter? Carpenter, yeah, yeah. Carpenter. Yeah, Jesus little, was a carpenter. Little, the initials the JC. Yeah. These are not, this, it's not subtle. <laughs> like at all. Um, he's, he's shot before he can deliver his message to the world. He dies. Uh, but he dies uh, after telling Patricia Neal that, um, Hey, if anything happens to me, Gort will annihilate the planet. Mm. That's just what he does. And so I need you, I'm giving you a code phrase that will give Gort different orders. And he just she doesn't even know what Gort's gonna do with them. Mm. He just knows it probably won't blow up the planet. And he tells her, just get it, go up to Gort and say, Gort, Klatu, Barada, Nikto. Mm. So she goes up to Gort and says, Klatu, Barada, <laughs> oh no no that's a joke they, re- they made in the 90s i know uh, it's still a funny joke clatuber on nick toe is is a pop culture staple it's leaked down into all kinds of science fiction uh evidently there's uh there's like a bunch of creatures in uh the movie return of the jedi yeah and they because they were all like marketing these creatures as toys they all have names yeah 
even like, if they didn't on camera. They're, they're just, no they're one just, talks they're to just them like or, backward you know. monst- background monsters, but they, they were all named for the sake of toy packaging. Yeah. And evidently there's a trio of characters named Klaatu, Barada, and Nikto. I know that. And Return fine. of the Jedi. Uh, the joke you just made is an allusion to the film Army of Darkness from uh, 1992 or 93? Early 90s. Early 90s. And... Uh, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto were the magical words that Ash had to recite over the evil book so he could possess it. Possess it without raising an army of darkness yeah. to destroy us all. And he forgot the last word yeah. and that raised an army of darkness and it so, did yeah, us he, all. In, in, in one of the... It, it, uh, just a sublimely funny moment. He, he says, Klaatu, Barada, and trying to like trick the powers that be. He's like, nah! <laughs> there! Yeah. I said it! <laughs> that counts! Klaatu, Barada... Necktie, Necturn, Nickel, Noodle. It was an N-word. N- it was it's an N-word. definitely an N-word. <laughs> it's, so it's really, really funny. It's um, very funny, but, uh, yeah, but it, Kla- it's told with dead seriousness here. I'm just making uh, a joke. I, and from what I understand, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, uh, unfortunately doesn't have like a press. It's not like a translation from like an ancient language or something. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It, they were, cool they're, words. they're nonsense words. Yeah. Um, so uh, Gort... Which was gonna kill her. Mm. He just killed a couple of soldiers who were like freaking out and using their guns. Uh, Gort shuts down, and then Gort's programming changes, and he goes and he takes Klaatu's body mm. from the American government, brings it back to the UFO, and then uses technology to bring Klaatu back to life. Funny thing about this this was a scene that got the movie in trouble with the production code. <laughs> Because it was sacrilegious, I'm sure. It's sacrilegious. Only God can bring people back to life. Mm. A robot can't do it. And I'm like, what the fuck? Where were you in Frankenstein? What the... Well, they're bringing people back to life this whole fucking time. Why is it it weird when a robot does it? First of all, Frankenstein was pre-code. Secondly, the sequels uh, weren't. uh, Secondly, there there was a line that was cut from Frankenstein, uh, where he he, when Frankenstein resurrects the monster and he says, "In the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God." Yeah. And depending on which version you see, uh, you either hear that line of dialogue or just a big thunderclap. I remember when I was a kid, that line wasn't available, and then they Mm. like rediscovered the audio and they put it back in. And it's such a stronger scene with mm. it. So it it is, but that's that's a horror movie. That's supposed to be sacrilegious. Yeah. Here it's a fucking metaphor, and it's sci-fi technology. And again, it's a metaphor for why, in the view of this movie, Christ was a good guy. <laughs> so I really don't know why this one was like. What are you afraid is going to happen if we let this slide? What is like? Is like God? God's going to be like, well, you let a robot bring a guy back to life in a movie, so you don't get in. Like but, again, that seems a little strong, right? This idea—it's really frustrating because uh, I think a lot of this was um, anti the idea of intellectualizing God as a concept. Yeah. God is an arguable concept, and the idea of presenting something just as powerful as God that is not God would, allows you to think of God a little bit more objectively, doesn't it? And oh, I, I, see think, what I, I think I think that's point. what a, a lot of. Uh, that's the kind of thinking that was trying to be discouraged by these production codes. But I like Lord, that thinking. Lord knows why. I love it too. And uh, yeah. there's a, a movie that I really love that nobody else does called Next. And it is about... Oh, with uh, Nicolas Cage. Or excuse me, not Next. It's called Knowing. Also uh, with, with Nicolas with Nic- Cage. With Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Next is a different one. 
uh, it's called Knowing with Nicolas Cage, and it is about uh, a, a kid who has like second sight, and he's he's able to write down in a code, kind of unwittingly, what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And they open up this uh, time capsule where this code was written, and Nicolas Cage finds that he's able to decipher the code and realize that it's corresponding to a lot of disasters that are happening around the world, like yeah. big cataclysms and train accidents. And he tries to go to these places to stop it. And over the course of the film, he learns that's not what he he can do with any of this. Yeah, it's this about is, this is not about preventing about it. disasters. Yeah. It's about yeah. Exactly. And, but yeah. Uh, also at work is there's uh, an, one of the threads of this movie is there's this alien intelligence that's floating around the earth, kind of giving messages. And when they appear, they look weirdly angelic, don't they? Yeah. They look like a ball of wings, as is described in the Bible, and yeah. it restages a lot of this biblical language, especially a lot of the Edenic imagery as alien technology and uh, the sort of uh, uh, extraterrestrial rather than supernatural. It's a really good movie. I find yeah. it a little hammy at the end, but it's fine. It's, like, I, 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 I doesn't think, really bring it down. I think it earns that hammy ending where yeah. there's the, like they're back in the Garden of Eden. But uh, see the movie Knowing. It's it's, it's actually really, really, really good. And yeah, yeah it's when all it about that. It you, but, okay. it's all, well, but it's all about that. It's yeah. all about how we all of these things that... Uh, seem strangely distant and supernatural as described in the ancient books of the Bible, uh, can be reinterpreted in a secular way through science fiction. Right. And that's something people have been toying with for a long time. And for the record, I don't think Whitney ruined that at all. I think we were all a little, little too concerned about spoilers. Uh, I mean, it's it's not not like, you know, like, I also want to tell you about it because it's a selling point. It it actually makes it a lot unique and sets it apart. I feel like there's this weird tendency where like, if a movie has been sullied in some way, Mm. like if like, you know, like when you're at the supermarket and it says, like, if the seal has been popped, don't buy it. That's mm. not true for movies. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. still a good product. It's still something that can still nourish you and give you something really interesting and exciting, even if... And sometimes you're right. Sometimes movies are, like, trying to hide behind secrecy when actually knowing what's in them would make you more excited to see it. Mm. Fair enough. And I think, again, that's the point of the movie is that knowing is valuable, even if you can't change anything. But I digress. Uh, so they added a line to the movie in which Patricia Neal says, Gort brought you back to life. And Michael Rennie says, no, only the almighty can do that. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. Well, and, and I also like the conceit in science fiction that other, other culture, other uh, like extraterrestrial species also have organized religion. It's fine. It's just shoehorned in there. And considering yeah. how we're really fascinated with the idea that this is like, you know this this is a, a higher intelligence of being hmm. um the idea that there's something that like they don't know i mean and for all we know when he refers to the almighty he's referring to um like emperor zog or something like <laughs> only the emperor can do that gort could just do it for a little while so he's well, back to she, life for a little while well she even asks how how long are you how, are you are you back how long are you going to live and he just says no one can say yeah, which so, and like I love and I, the implication is that he'll be maybe has five minutes, but he's actually in no rush. Maybe he's got another twenty years. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> like they don't talk about uh-huh. it. He doesn't like collapse and die at the end. He mm. just goes away. So who the hell can say? But in any case, he walks out of the the spaceship, goes in front of all the scientists, and says, and "What's hilarious is that we were just talking about how spoilers don't necessarily ruin the movie. Mm. This speech is in the trailer." The whole point of the movie is what does Klaatu want to tell humanity that's so important mm. he has to tell it to all of us simultaneously. And they show it in the trailer. Yeah, it's <laughs> tell you. It's really funny. And and it's it's um it, it's a it, it, 
I, I'm a little ambivalent about this ending, though. Mm, and this yeah. is the central message of the day the Earth stood still. And it's essentially a strong arm argument. It is. It's uh, we have this species of robots. Yeah. That, and when he descri- the way he describes Gort, um, it, it's almost they're cops, and it's almost like they didn't invent these things. They kind of discovered them. They don't even really mm. know what they are. Well, they said that but, uh, they say that we have willingly uh, mm. uh, given ourselves under their authority, and they're, mm. what they do is. They check aggression. Yeah. If you you're what you can be as free as you want as long as you're not bullying each other or mm. trying to commit acts of violence. And when they do, these robots will put a stop to you. And that's a bit fascistic. Yeah. It yeah. is undeniably so. And what he says is we don't care what you guys do on your own planet. You want to beat yourselves up on your own planet, we're not gonna stop yeah. you. But you're, the second you're you really... put a nuclear missile on a rocket into outer space, Gort will fuck your shit up. Now that's you're right that's kind of a weird ending because you would think he would be like all altruistic and or even just like maybe something a little bit more benevolent in terms of a message like Mm -hmm. we are going to be monitoring your planet and we're going to be helping you guide you to that you will be less aggressive before you start making your trek into the stars you're going to start trekking into the stars and uh and yes the star trek was heavily inspired by this movie sure um And if you do that, then you'll be rewarded in some way. You'll yeah. you'll join this larger community. We can't tell you about it yet, but you'll you'll get to there's an intergalactic be, you'll, United Nations. You'll, you'll start yeah. to evolve, and you need to start working toward that. And that's the reward, and that should be reward enough. It should be, it, it, but it's not reward based. It's actually punishment based. Exactly, which is a little counterproductive. Which is like counterintuitive to the hmm. premise of the film, which well, is that these people are beyond hmm. that, and maybe they're not, and maybe we're all just kind of stuck this way. And maybe the premise, the point of the movie is that. That all for all the benevolence and as good as this seems, this is basically just America in space. This is America coming to a country that is in some form of turmoil, mm. assuming will be re- will be received as like liberators, and it turns out no. Mm. And then they Vietnam just say, hadn't happened yet. By I the know way. it's yeah. kind of weird. And so it's like, okay, peace, 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 peace. And everyone's like, well, we don't want peace right now. And we'll be like, was, okay, we'll fuck your shit up. We'll fuck your shit up. This wasn't, remember, this was after World War II. We mm-hmm. felt we had that sort of authority. And mm-hmm. now this was trying well, to Korea turn. Korea was, the Korean War was around this. That's time. true. But yeah, uh, so, th- yeah. this was trying to turn that back on us a little yeah. bit. It's like, you're not the liberators. You're, yeah. you know, that you think you are. I feel like the movie sometimes gets interpreted as this, again, it is Christ-like. And I think it is supposed to be, um, you know, this was. I feel like it's not so much that Klaatu is an actual emissary of benign omniscience. Mm. I feel like he's the best the writers could come up with based on the time in which they were writing the movie, based mm. on the philosophies that were prevalent at the time, well, based on the politics that they were trying to be and it does make against it, at the time. In a weird way, it does make sense because uh, you know, America was sort of getting off on their own strength at that point, and this was a way to ju- just humble America. There's somebody stronger than you. doesn't mm-hmm. matter how strong you think you are, doesn't matter how many nuclear bombs you've invented, the technologies mm-hmm. do advance, and there's probably somebody out there who's thought of something before you did. Mm-hmm. And so... Don't get all high and mighty. Well, there's uh, uh, mm. something I'll always remember is um, mm. in ancient Rome mm. when a uh, when a returning general would return home from victory and they would yeah. parade them through the streets. Look at the greatness of Rome, and there would actually be uh, someone mm. next to the general throughout that entire time mm. saying over and over again, "Memento mori," remember thou art mortal. Mm. Look at your greatness. Cool. You're also a human being and you're very fucking fallible. Mm. 
And that was probably there in part to prevent that general from taking over power because Mm -hmm. one of the fundamental flaws in Roman civilization was that they actually never figured out how to transition power when one emperor died. But um, it's also good advice, I think. It's just sort of like, don't get cocky. And that's what America was doing. It was getting cocky, and it's still cocky. Mm. And we could probably use a a shot of humility Mm. once in a while. Um, Anyway, that is the day the Earth stood still. Um, In addition to being, you know, a potent allegory, maybe a little wonky at the end, your mileage might vary. Um, It's really wonderfully acted. Michael Rennie and Patricia Neal in particular are really great Mm. in it. Uh, The visual effects still hold up pretty good today. Some more so than others, but it looks neat. They're not so complex. I think that's what I like about The the Day the Earth Stood Still. We have a cool robot Mm -hmm. uh, played by an actor. um, Oh, gosh. uh, More more of like a a stunt guy. It wasn't like a a well-known actor. Actually, he was uh, he was a he was working for the for the Chinese theater in Mm. Los Angeles. And he was like a seven foot seven. Yeah. uh, Like ticket taker. His name is uh, Locke Martin was the actor's name, yeah. um, and um, it, and uh, he actually wasn't very strong. Uh, a lot of people who are who are that height, you know, you, it's tempting to cast them as giants in movies, but you know, there's actually a lot of hmm. uh, uh, he, he couldn't carry Patricia Neal, like in the like the scene required him to, so hmm. she was like on wires and things. Um, but also that Gort costume was apparently spectacularly uncomfortable and he could only wear it for 30 minutes at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh he, he was a really tall guy, but he wasn't like a, a weightlifter or anything. He, wasn't like he was Andre a bodybuilder. Yeah. He was, he was just tall. So yeah, he had trouble wearing that suit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that we, we have Gort, we have the, the spaceship, we have a few laser beam effects, but for the most part, this is actually con- conceptual science fiction Yeah, about what would happen if, you know, a, a creature came to space. What is a first contact going to look like? Yeah. And as and, somebody who was raised on Star Trek, I see a lot of Star Trek coming from this. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, uh, mm. this is directed by Robert Wise, who would eventually direct Star Trek. Star Trek motion motion picture. picture. Yeah. Robert Wise uh, got his start as an editor. He actually edited films for Orson Welles. Um, I think if memory serves, his first directorial experience was reshooting the ending of the Magnificent Ambersons, mm. which put him on the outs with Orson Welles for many years. And he was his whole argument was, well, someone had to do it. Like the studio was going to do it anyway. I at least know what the movie's supposed to look like. Mm. Um, but then he would actually, again, like a lot of filmmakers, he got to start doing a lot of genre films. I think his first directorial feature was the sequel to Cat People. Which is, uh, Curse um, of the Cat People. Curse of the Cat People. Um, which is kind of an interesting film, actually, um, about um, sort of nature versus nurture and uh, people who are concerned that their young daughter uh, may have uh, an identity that they don't want to encourage and are trying to prevent her from becoming what she's clearly supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very dark in that regard. And it's a little bit more savvy than I think you might expect. Um, but he would go on to have one of the most fascinating and varied careers of any filmmaker. Like he went on to do the sound of music, but also the haunting. Yeah. You know, these he's, are, he's done some of the best movies ever made, including this one. This is one of, the, of one of the best science fiction movies. Yep. Um, yeah, this was like, and he did a lot too. This was like his 15th film or something. And again, a lot of people who were, Patricia Neal apparently said that like when she was making the movie, she thought it was a B movie. She thought it was just a sci-fi flick that was just going to be thrown off and, Turned out it was a, it was great. It was mm-hmm. successful. It was respected. It's uh, in the Library of Congress now. Um, this was a movie that helped accelerate 
science fiction in the mainstream and get more attention to it, make it uh, uh, more prominent a genre, and also help people take it a little bit more seriously. Uh, and it's still one of the films we point to as one of the first American features, anyway, to sort of unlock the science fiction genre mm. uh, on that on that level. Again, obviously Frankenstein, but most people consider that a horror movie. And, of course, Metropolis, and there are other examples, but this was a big deal. Yeah. Um, uh, and, indeed, uh, to bring this back to Rocky Horror... Uh, sorry, did, did I interrupt you? No, I was, okay. I was, I was, I was, I gestured. I was oh, like, yeah. it was, it was supposed to be an aha. Ah. Good, <laughs> it was, it was a gesture that meant good segue. Yeah, um, I did, I accidentally distracted. Th- this sort of un- unlocking of, uh, kind of inventing in a lot of ways what we think of as American science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, was the type of movie, and this film and its children essentially were what uh, is alluded to not just by name in science fiction double feature, but the whole notion of a science fiction double feature going to the, the movies in the sixties and the seventies and watching these older science fiction films that have these kind of heady ideas. Yeah. They're and getting uh, something out of them. They're yeah. really kind of poignant. There's something special about that science fiction double feature. It's not just sitting in the back row and you know making out with your date. It's mm. although that's in there. That, like, that's definitely the part of it. Yeah. 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 That's in there. Hmm. But regardless, we're getting something out of these movies, and you see mm. what we get out of something like *The Day of the Earth Stood Still*. That's in the DNA of the Rocky Horror Picture mm. Show, where you know Frank Furter is from another planet, mm. and he came from another planet with an ethos that he wants to instill upon humans. <laughs> it's a kinky ethos, yeah, the, and maybe it's not entirely moral, his, his, but he's his, gonna yeah. do it. His, he's his got ethos a job. Is, is brazen hedonism, right? But again, and he actually does in, in a way mm. get martyred on the altar of hedonism. And on, he gets martyred on the, on the altar of hedonism, but he, he is also a martyr to old science fiction. Yeah. Remember where he dies in front is, of the RKO is logo. on the RKO logo. Yeah. Uh, well, he, is it in front of her on? I'm trying all right. To no, he's actually climbing the curtain. Oh yeah. And, and riff shoots him. Yeah. And then, uh, Rocky picks him up and throws Frankenfurter over his shoulder and starts climbing the RKO logo there you at go, King yeah. Kong. And that's when Riff shoots him down as well. Yeah. And, um, I can't spoil the ending of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> you haven't seen it by now. Jeez. Yeah, a lot of people don't even get to the ending. A lot that's of true. People fall asleep before the actual end of the they movie. They fall asleep. They're too drunk or they're busy making out. You know, yeah. there's, it's okay if you missed it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show is about, the hidden meaning behind movies that a lot of people didn't really think about as having a hidden meaning. Mm. These are films are about outsiders. These are films about martyrs. These are films about uh, different lifestyles and personalities and identities and the way that mainstream, very conservative culture did not respond well to other people. What's yeah, the first yeah. thing that happens when something new and magical comes into the world in the day the earth stood still? They shoot An it. Idiot yeah. shoots it. <laughs> Boom. Mm. Done. Boom, boom, literally boom. Yeah. Anyway, great motion picture. I encourage everybody who hasn't seen it, please go see it. It holds up really, really good. Mm. Um, We will be back next time on episode zero with not a science fiction movie, (laughs) not a horror movie. We're going to be talking about a film called The Women. Not Little Women. No, no, no. This is the sequel. They grew up. And now it's just the women. No, it's not a sequel. It actually is a sequel to Little Women. <laughs> yeah, it's called Little Men. Yeah, and it's about uh, the the 
young men that Joe was teaching later on in her life. But anyway, um, but this is a George Cukor film, and uh, it's got a who's who cast of incredible stars. This movie's from 1939. It stars Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, mm. Rosalind Russell, Paulette Goddard, Joan Fontaine, Ruth Hussey, had a hopper is in it. Like it's what what a phenomenal cast. And one of the interesting things about the cast is no men. Yep. At all. It's called the women. Yeah. Who needs men? I, you don't not, need them not in, I. You don't need them in movies. Um, Look, men have plenty of movies. All right. <laughs> that ain't that the fucking truth. Yeah. But yeah, so this was this is a, a, a unique picture at the time. Uh, and it is one that I have never seen, and I'm very excited yeah. about it. A lot of people have told me I need to see this movie. I haven't been avoiding it. I was just mm-hmm. looking for the right time to sit down, and awesome. And so we get to talk about the way that this film is not only uh, specifically referenced in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like there's a poster of it in the movie, if I recall, um, but we'll talk about how it connects, and I actually don't know in great detail, so I'm excited to find out. Also, uh, Nor- Norma Shearer is like my secret girlfriend. So uh, <laughs> Norma I, Shearer is the shit. I, I so love Norma Shearer. So uh, any chance to see another Norma Shearer film, I'm going to take an opportunity. Yeah. Norma Shearer, uh, The Barretts of Wimpole Street, The Divorcee, mm. uh, which we just we just talked about in the last mm. episode of The Iron List. Uh, sadly, her Romeo and Juliet is not a good movie. She's uh, she plays Juliet, and yeah, she's she was, she, she was like ten years too old for the part already. Yeah, and it just. It, She's actually good, but the movie it doesn't work. Yeah. So um, that's the one Norma Shearer movie where I would just say, yeah, you didn't see that. <laughs> Ironically, she was a better Juliet in the Hollywood Review of 1929. Oh, that's right. Where they do, where, it, they where do, they an, do this uh, kind of like vaudeville kind of broad comedy version of well, that, of a scene from Romeo and Juliet. The idea, the Hollywood Review of 1929 was this movie that has no plot. It was basically just everyone at the studio does a bit. Maybe it's a musical yeah. number. Maybe it's a comedy routine. And it's it's a it's a huge who's who cavalcade of major stars. Yeah. Like we got Jack Benny. We got Laurel and Hardy. Um, we got Marion Davies. We got like and and they're all like playing themselves basically. And there's this whole bit with uh, uh, Norma Shearer. And John Gilbert as Romeo and Juliet, and they do the balcony scene, mm. and then the director comes in and says, "Hey, we got some studio notes. <laughs> Can they, you do it different? They think uh, they think this needs to be jazzed up and modernified, mm. and so they end up doing the whole scene in like contemporary slang, which nowadays feels as retro as the Shakespeare, but it's really funny. Mm. That's a better Romeo and Juliet than her actual Romeo and Juliet." bit disappointed but anyway we'll talk about the women next week on episode zero thank you everybody for listening thank you everybody for joining us on this journey uh once again uh if you want to uh send us an email you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode uh we have an email address it's letters at critically acclaimed.net or if you're alonzo duralde you can send me a text. <laughs> Did he just text you? No, but he texted me earlier this week to say that we actually got a couple of things wrong in the last episode. We sure did. Yeah, uh, he, I want to take a moment for this. Uh, we, we were talking about the celluloid closet, which is about the history of queer representation in Hollywood film. And Alonso Duralde uh, has literally written a book on queer cinema. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he's he's curated Outfest. You know, he's he knows his shit. He, he knows this better than we do. I'm so. actually impressed that he only was able that he only corrected us on two things. <laughs> <laughs> like he could have probably corrected us on more, but was maybe yeah. being decent about or it. Or maybe we didn't do too bad. But in any case, uh, we got two things wrong. And uh, one was regarding the movie The Children's Hour, mm. which I 
believe neither of us had seen and we were going off of the clips that they showed in the movie mm. uh we uh talked about it's a film about how uh, uh Sh- shirley mclean and audrey, audrey hepburn yeah. audrey hepburn and uh some kids at the school uh that they're teaching at say that they're lesbians but it turns out according to alonzo Duralde, actually only one of them is a lesbian and that's part of the drama mm. it wasn't clear from the clips but we didn't want to misrepresent the film uh and um I deferred to you on this, so and, I'm just going to throw you under the bus here. Well, uh, and, uh, but, uh, this the... was about cruising, and I was going off some misinformation yeah. uh, about how cruising um, more or less invented like the hanky code, but evidently it was... Uh, William Friedkin got his idea from the hanky code from an article about that very thing. Okay. Uh, so it was actually a real-world practice before it was referenced in the movie Cruise. Yeah, look up the hanky code. You can mm-hmm. find out more there. Clearly, we don't know enough about mm-hmm. it. So I want to say a very special thank you to Alonzo Duralde for keeping us honest. Mm-hmm. I have I have corrected him about geeky, nerdy shit before, and he's over here correcting us about actually important shit. So I'm really... <laughs> like, like, I'm really really glad he's there for us so thank you for that but if you want to talk to us about anything we discussed in this episode or anything at all letters at critically acclaimed.net is the address and we will happily read mm. your emails on an upcoming episode of we've got mail we don't have time to read all of them but we read as many as we can we're also on twitter at critic acclaim i'm at lynn bibiani i'm at whitney seibold uh we have a patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network mm. uh, and at our patreon we have a ton of exclusive content at every single tier there's a big old backlog, uh, and uh, we, we're, we're, we're just happy to have so many people who are supporting us. If you're one of our supporters, we're incredibly grateful to you. If it wasn't for your financial support, mm. even the free shows would not exist. That's just a, that's just a fact. Um, and we would love to do more, uh, but you know we're, we're doing the best we can right now. But um, in any case, uh, we would love to see you at the Patreon if you can afford it. If you can't. And who can fucking blame you? It's a really rough time right now. But you want to support the show? Leave us a review wherever you find us. That would be really, really helpful. If Mm -hmm. you see anyone maybe online saying, hey, I need a good podcast. And assuming you think we are a good podcast, maybe you could say, critically acclaimed isn't bad. Like, whatever. Every little bit helps. (laughs) Every little bit helps. And it it makes a huge difference. Uh, Also, we want to give a special thank you to everyone who's already purchased our soap. Etsy.com slash shop slash salt cat soap. Or just go to Etsy.com. And look for Salt Cat Soap, in case I got that uh, website wrong. Uh, we have a ton of, des- well, not a ton, but like we have a lot of designer soaps uh, mm. that were designed by M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, and uh, I've got a few designs that I'm working on as well that are connected to some upcoming matches in the Schmodown. Um, hopefully we'll be able to debut those in the next week or two. Uh, but we do have some cool new designs that are coming up in about a week over at Salt Cat Soap. Salt Cat Soap also has a Twitter. It's Salt Cat Soap. Hmm. which is also the Instagram. So if you want to get pictures of upcoming soaps, more pictures of Luca, maybe uh, some uh, maybe some coupons here and there, Salt Cat Soap is the place to be. So thank you, everybody, once again for joining us. And until next time, I see you shiver with Antissa... Spider-Man! Antissa Spider-Man. I don't know. <laughs>